0: When I uh, started junior high school, it was the time that my family moved to a different state. And um, it was tough getting adjusted to a new community and a new school, particularly when the year just started. The first day of school, my, my dad drove me and said it wasn't that complicated. There's just a couple of turns to make to walk back home, and he showed me that, that route. After the first day of school, though, I started walking home, and... Uh, at some point, thought, I'm lost. I don't know where this new house is. So I just went up to the nearest uh, house that was uh, by the sidewalk there and knocked on the door and somebody answered. A guy holding a cigarette and a beer and, what, he said. I said, well, I- I- I'm lost and I, I wonder if-, if I could use your phone. And um, his wife was there, and she said, "Oh, come on in, son. Let, let him use the phone said, so i don 't remember how I knew the number to call or if I knew, but somehow I got a hold of my mom, and she didn 't have a car. My dad had the car, and um, Vivian Bond was uh, living nearby a missionary, and uh, uh, my mom said that she would get her to pick me up she said you know where 's the address? I got that from the, from the gruff man and uh, and he sent me outside to wait, and I'm standing on the sidewalk waiting for uh, my mom to pick me up, and some high school kids came along, and they said, what are you doing standing on our front of our house? Get out of here. Okay, so I moved down the street a little bit. Get off the sidewalk, they said. So now I'm standing in the street, little meek junior high kid waiting for my mom to come pick me up, which she did. And uh, that was the first day of school. The... the, the the next day, I'm walking home. Now I know the route. I'd walked to school, and I'm on the way back home, and my nose just starts to bleed. No one hit me. Not this time. No one hit me. I Just my nose is bleeding all over the place. And so I, I frantically look around. I'm not near that guy's house. And I, I, see, I go up to one house, knock, nobody answers. I, I go to the next house, and, and, and I knock on the door, and, and I see the, the curtain open, and then it closed really fast, and nobody opened the door. And so I go, it's like, what am I going to do? I'm leaving a trail of blood everywhere, and... I see this house that has a big letter B in the window. Uh, well, my last name's Bukema. These might be nice people. Uh, and so I go and knock on that door and a, a very nice lady opens the door and she, she uh, sees my situation. She helps me stop the nosebleed. She cleans me up as best I can and sends me on my way. And I go, home. Oh, that was the second day of school. It, it, it actually got a lot worse from there. But I'll, I'll stop there. I learned later that That big letter B, which was the community that we lived in, was a symbol, it was a sign that if a kid was in trouble, they could go to that house. It was like a a safe place you could be. I don't think that would work any longer today in our world, but but that's what it meant then. And I thought, that would have been really helpful information for somebody to tell me. Where you go when you need help? Now I'll come back to that situation in my life in a bit, but I want you to think about the last time you were in a tough spot. What did you do? Where did you go? Whether the challenge was something very small and minor or it was enormous, how you handle that reveals what you really believe about God, what you really understand about God. What do you do when you need shelter? Well, we're studying one of the greatest stories of all time. It's found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I'll catch you up on the plot so far. The events of Ruth happened over 3,000 years ago during the period of the Judges, one of the darkest periods in the history of God's people. And uh, another main character, in addition to Ruth, is Naomi, uh, who... uh, Had left Bethlehem, her homeland, to escape famine, she, her husband, and their two sons moved away from Bethlehem to a wicked place called Moab. That's how the first chapter begins. And while in Moab, Naomi's husband and her two sons both all die. And uh, so some years later, Naomi returns to Bethlehem after leaving and returns with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, both of them now widows, both of them facing poverty, And Naomi has been such a great example of faith in the one true God that her daughter-in-law Ruth has put her trust in God as well. But because of all the grief and the pain that Naomi has experienced, she believes that God is punishing her. That God has been out to get her and that's why all these bad things are happening. So Naomi looks into the future. She sees only emptiness. She feels only bitterness. She can't imagine that God is at work in her life because of all the terrible things that are happening. Now, even though both Naomi and Ruth are impoverished widows in a seemingly hopeless situation, God made a way for them. And this is more than just a nice story. Uh, Right in the middle of chapter 2 today, we're going to see the most important concept, I believe, in the entire book, because this explains Ruth's belief in God, how, how it shaped where she went for help. This concept makes sense of all Ruth's actions and of everything that happens to her. And that has great meaning for how you and I live today in our world. We're going to see that in a moment. Uh, but first, notice how Ruth responds to the situation she and her mother-in-law in of having nothing to eat. Uh, Ruth 2, verse 2. So, and Ruth the Moabite has said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. So um, this daughter-in-law, this foreign girl from an idol-worshipping nation, this young widow with nothing going for her at this moment, says to her mother-in-law, let me go work. Now remember, they don't have anything. They don't have money. They don't have food. They don't have a support system, really. She says, let me go to the field and glean in the Old Testament, gleaning was like food stamps. Uh, it was like going to the local food pantry when you're in need. It was like receiving welfare. It was social services in the ancient world. And here's how it worked. God told his people Israel, uh, those who were landowners, those who were farmers, not to harvest every single thing they planted, that they should not pick every last grape off the vine, that they should not harvest the corners and the edges of their fields. Why? so that the poor and the stranger could get something to eat, could gather something. It was not a handout as much as it was an opportunity for the desperate to get food. Now this is not the time for us to talk about businesses and farmers following this principle today, because that's not the focus of this story at all. What I just want you to notice is that Ruth took initiative uh, to feed her mother-in-law. And this brings us to the first of three actions that I want to point out to you. Three actions that that you should take when you are in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when you need help. Uh, We're going to see what Ruth does, and we're going to see how that uh, transfers to our lives today in, in following God. So these are actions to take when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when you need help. And the first action is to take the biblical next step. Take the biblical next step. Now, Ruth could have sat on her hands and, and watched Real Housewives of Bethlehem. She could have uh, told Naomi, uh, you know, you've got contacts here. Let's go and, and make some, some connections. She could have cried out to God and waited for God to, to do something miraculous, to make the next move. But what she does is she takes the next step that was outlined in Scripture, uh, she, The provision of gleaning is described in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23. This was how God called that society of his people to feed the destitute. Now, gleaning was not glamorous. It was humbling. It was hard. And if you read carefully here in this story, you discover that it was also dangerous because some men took advantage of these destitute women. But Ruth went ahead with this anyway. And she did so with Naomi's blessing. Now sometimes when we're in a tough spot, we get paralyzed. Maybe you can admit that to yourself. Sometimes you feel paralyzed in a tough situation. And your stomach gets it all in knots because what if I choose wrong? What if I do the wrong thing? And this affects people who don't really think anything about God because it's all up to them. So they're very pressured about this. And it also affects people who are very much believing in God because the thought is, well, what if I do something that is not God's perfect will? And so uh, many times you get paralyzed by this. And, And I would tell you that when unbelievers and believers can face the same kind of paralyzing uncertainty, something is wrong. I submit that if you know Christ... You don't have to be stuck. Uh, he has given us so much direction in Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. If you're trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, providing guidance and wisdom. Uh, years ago, I had an acquaintance, a casual friend who was uh, uh, downsized from a mid-level executive position. And uh, after a few months, uh, he was a neighbor, so we were talking, but I, after a few months, I discovered his wife is extremely frustrated with him. Because he was holding out for a job that was equal to or better than the job that he left. And so other jobs that were being offered or available, he was not taking. And month after month after month went by. And and this is a man who claimed to be a Christian. And I would talk through some things with him and say, hey, a clear next step was to get whatever job you can get to provide for your family. Uh, that's your responsibility. That's what you need to do as a believer. You say you follow Christ, that's, that's your responsibility. But he was content to hold out for the dream, and it contributed to the breakup of his marriage. Uh, now, Between the clear teaching of Scripture that we have and the ministry of the Holy Spirit within every believer, there's so much guidance available. But some of us get stuck because we're afraid, or because we find it difficult, or because we're too proud. Ephesians 5.17 says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, you can understand what God wants you to do. Don't be foolish. Not to to understand that will is to be foolish, because there are some clear markers there. So notice how Ruth responds, verse 3. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Out of all the fields that she could have chosen... Ruth picks one owned by Boaz, a relative of her late father-in-law. She doesn't know that. And and it doesn't surprise you at all that the Bible describes it this way. She happened to. That's how the Bible describes it. Like it was an accident or like it was luck. How did she select that field? Did an angel appear and point that one to her? Did the field glow? Did she have a vision? No. Notice this. She just took the next biblical step. And the God who is sovereign and the God who is good brought her to Boaz. Think that through. Uh, Now, notice verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. So here we have the other major character appearing on the scene, Boaz, and he's no lightweight. Verse 1 of this chapter described him as a mighty man of ability. So this is, this is a, he is quite an important, successful, wealthy guy, the boss, and we immediately get a sense of the kind of man that he is, because look how he greets his employees. I'm sure your boss does the same thing to you every morning, doesn't he? And the crew stops working and gives him a blessing in return. Doesn't it sound like tomorrow to you? When you go to work, may the Lord bless you and you as well. No, Boaz is a good, godly man, and he's the hero. And immediately, he notices Ruth. Now, we're not told that she's good-looking. We're not told anything about her appearance. We have no evidence to suggest that she was anything out of the ordinary. But this stranger in his field, another stranger, caught his eye, and he asks his men, who is that? Now, he might have said, who is that? I don't know. That's Inflection's not in the text. The foreman explains, this is the gal from Moab. She showed up with Naomi. And she asked to glean. And notice what the foreman says in the next sentence, verse 7. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So here's the second action to take when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, and that is simply work hard. Work hard. Ruth is not doing a half-hearted job. She's not dragging through the day, grumbling about how she has to do everything. She's not moping around saying she deserves better from this God she's now following. She's not daydreaming about someday my prince will come. Because she's not not dolled up even. She's all sweaty and covered with stalks and stems and field dust. And Boaz notices and he's impressed that she's working so hard. In verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Stay here with my maids. I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. I see this as the first sexual harassment policy that's written down. Uh, Boaz provides for her needs. He cares for her welfare. He's impressive. He has money, but he doesn't try to buy her. He's in charge, but he doesn't try to control her. He's important, but he doesn't try to dominate her. He's powerful, but he doesn't try and take advantage of her. He shows care and concern. And notice Ruth's response. Verse 10. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth wants to know, what's your motive, fella? What are you up to here? I think it's a, a, a fair question because, after all, she doesn't have a lot going for her. She's somebody who could easily be taken advantage of. She's in need. She's previously married. She's relatively homeless. She's unemployed. She's a foreigner. She has a bitter mother-in-law. Not a lot of guys are going to say, sign me up for that. Boaz explains why, why she, he's being so kind. Boaz replied to her, verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. So Boaz knows her story. Ruth has mo- loved her mother-in-law as if she was her own mother. She was willing to leave everything behind, family, friends, home, in order to support Naomi in her need. And Boaz is impressed. And what he says next is like the central teaching of the entire book. It explains everything. Verse 12. May the Lord reward your work. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So Ruth left her gods, her culture, her people, and put her trust in the God of Israel. And everything Ruth did, helping poor Naomi, coming to Bethlehem, going to glean in the field, was based on her finding refuge in the one true God. And remember, Ruth grew up worshiping Chemosh. That was the God of Moab. Moab. The God to whom you sacrificed babies to to win a battle. A, a nation founded on, on incest. But through Ruth's relationship with Naomi, Ruth put her trust in the Lord. Now let's finish this chapter and then I'll show you how this connects everything together. When it's, The work day is happening. When it's time to take a break to eat, Boaz invites Ruth to join them. Check out this little detail, verse 14. So she sat beside the reaper's. And he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So Ruth gets full. Remember this is a time of hunger for she and Naomi. She basically asks for a doggy bag here. And many times if if you go out to eat and you have some leftovers, you box them up, take them home, put them in the fridge so you can throw them out a week later. Uh, This was so that she could provide for her mother-in-law. How thoughtful is that? How much she cares for this woman who's... Kind of given up hope in God's care for her. But before Ruth can go home, there's more work to do. So she goes back out to glean to finish the day of work. And when she did, look what happened. Verse 15. Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it. Now, uh, by the way, let me just say, There are lots of indications here that it was was possible for uh, workers to habitually uh, hit on and harass and take advantage of these women who are vulnerable. So Boaz repeatedly warns his workers not to do that. Uh, But he says, Help her out a little. Leave a few extra handfuls for her to pick up. Talk nicely to her. Now it's interesting that Boaz doesn't treat Ruth like she can be bought, he had money to pay. And he could say, hey, don't go bother out to the field. Uh, you know, I like you. Here's some cash. Just go home, get cleaned up, take care of your mother-in-law. Uh, but no, he, what he does, he just makes her difficult situation easier and safer for her. So verse 17, it won't stop there. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. So talk about hard work. She's been working all day, right until it's dark. Then she goes and separates the barley from the stalks and gathers an ephah. An ephah could be as much as 50 pounds of barley, far more than could be expected from an ordinary day of gleaning. And she carts that all back home along with the leftovers and Naomi looks at this uh, uh, load of grain worth a week's pay and she's chewing the leftovers from Ruth's lunch and she's in awe. What happened? Where did you go? Who are you working for? And and Ruth says, some guy named Boaz. And I can see Naomi almost choke on her food. Do you know who that is? He's a relative of your father in law. This is amazing. And when Ruth reports that Boaz Boaz has invited her back to his field. Naomi encourages Ruth to do just that, saying that it would be far safer than going to any other field. And so verse 23 sums up the the end of this. It says, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So that period of harvest time, those two different crops, that's at least seven weeks of time. And during that time, Ruth worked the fields, She spent that time hanging out with the women workers, putting food on the table for her mother-in-law. And that last sentence is a significant detail because this makes it clear that Ruth Ruth didn't go off on some romantic journey. She didn't abandon her mother-in-law. Boaz and Ruth weren't hooking up. Uh, This whole relationship was proper. Uh, She stayed with her mother-in-law that entire time. So here comes the, the, the third action to take when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when you need help, and that is do the righteous thing. Do the righteous thing. So I want you to look at both sides for a moment. Uh, Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth. She's a foreigner. I'm a citizen. She's new in town. I'm the big man in town. Uh, She's poor. I'm rich. She's powerless. I'm powerful. She's not a virgin. I'm a bachelor. She's desperate. I'm successful. So I'm going to put on some Axe body spray and she's mine. He could have said that. He did not. He treated her with kindness. And he ordered everybody else to do the same. He invited her to stay for the whole harvest. And on the other side, Ruth could have played him. Clearly, he had some interest in her. He was helping her. She, she caught his attention, even in her desperate situation, with all her baggage and her mother-in-law. But she knew there was some interest there. And as needy as she was, Ruth did not use him. For seven weeks or more, she went to work in the fields, and she went home at night to be with her mother-in-law. Now, this is not about practical life advice. What I want to do is show you how God impacts everyday life. And we have to see that. What I want you to understand, everything that Ruth did and everything that happened to Ruth must be viewed through this lens in the middle of the chapter. Where Boaz says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Ruth lived knowing where to find shelter. She focused on her great protector and her great provider, and it was not Boaz. Boaz was part of the plan, but the plan was God's. And so this word today is only for those who know who their great protector, provider, and redeemer is. This is for you. If you have come to God through faith in Jesus, if you believe that by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later, Jesus paid for your freedom from sin and made you holy in the sight of God and has given you not only joy in the present but a future promise, then this is a vital lesson for you and me. If your faith and trust is not in Jesus, this is just practical advice with, with very little help. But if you know who your Redeemer is, this is for you, and you can know your Redeemer today. In Christ alone is our salvation. And so for those of you who have found your faith and founded your faith in Christ alone, when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when you need help, here's what you do. You take the next step and you trust God. You do the righteous thing. You work hard and you trust God. This is what you do. You say, well, maybe maybe today you live in fear. You might not admit it, not even to the person that you know the best next to you. You might not admit, but there's some fear. Like, what's going to happen? What if this doesn't work? What if I make a mistake? What if I go the wrong way? What should I do next? But let me underline for you that if your trust is in the Lord God, there's no need to fear. Confidence comes not from having all the answers because you don't. Confidence comes because you've, taken refuge under the wings of the Lord Almighty. And if there's a next step to take, take it just so it, does, it honors God and doesn't disobey Him. And one of the things I, I've thought about through the years is when our, our oldest daughter was um, looking into universities, she had a very particular idea of what she wanted to study. She had a very particular idea of which university she would go to. And so she applied early to only one school, one. That's how confident she was. Despite her parents saying, you know, you need to apply to more. No, one school. And they rejected my beautiful daughter. How dare they? This was an elite school. She did not get in. So now what? Now what? So, so there, there's kind of a, a flurry here, scrambling to take the next step. She applied to several other schools. She was accepted to all of them. So now, which one do you accept? Which field do you go work in? So she takes the next step, and that's where just in the first week or two, she discovers the career that she took, which wasn't even on her radar before, and a couple, three years later, she meets her husband, and they're married, they have three children, and to wonder, well, what would have happened if she got accepted at that school, and she didn't meet Aaron, the greatest son-in-law in the world, and they didn't have three beautiful children, like your head would explode if you think about those what-ifs, Right? Because it all would have been so different. Well, you take the next step and you trust God. If you're dithering between two decisions today, it's time to stop spinning your wheels and walk forward in assurance of the God who is in control. Trust Him for the next biblical step. And just because you trust God doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. You believe God for employment and you look for a job. You ask God for help on the exam and you study for hours. You pray for your husband to get saved and you show him the love of Christ every day. You depend on God to meet your needs and you get to work on time and do your best. You you ask God for a wife and you look good, smell nice, and act better. Work hard, trust God. And when should you worry about the decision that you make? When the option you're considering is not righteous. Because the greatest danger you and I face is when in trouble, when overwhelmed, when in need, when needing help, the greatest danger is doing what isn't righteous. That's the temptation that you face. So you're concerned about the balance sheet, so you take advantage of a naive customer. You're not prepared for the test, so you copy from somebody else. You desperately want to feel love and and connection, so you sleep with that person. You can't believe how they hurt you, so you refuse to forgive them. You're in financial difficulty, but you keep buying stuff anyway, knowing you can't pay for it. You don't feel valued, so you explode in anger. You don't want to get in trouble, so you lie about what you did. But see, if you do the righteous thing and trust God, He is your refuge, your shelter, your provider. So I had a pretty bad first week of junior high in a new city. And it got worse from there. I mean, I, I, my locker was vandalized and they destroyed my trumpet and it wasn't my music teacher that did that. I got threatened with physical violence and experienced some of that. Just ba- it was a bad year. But you know what? I can look back on that and tell you that that was a spiritual turning point in my life. Because what I did as a, I believe, 13 year old, is I began that practice of reading my Bible through every year and studying it. And I began to pray, seriously pray. And it was a, a time of spiritual growth in my life that was extremely important and significant as we bring this service to a close, I want you to catch sight of who God is. I want you to see that the creator of the universe is intimately involved in your life as he is in mine. And if the Lord is your trust, then he is with you. He's guiding you. He's working out his plan every single day. Listen to the the words from the great Bible teacher, Alan Redpath. He said, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until it's gone past God, past Christ, right through to me. And if it's come that far, it's come with great purpose. And as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will ever cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. This morning, some of you are in need. Others of you are facing tough decisions. Many of you are confronting challenging circumstances. What do you believe about God? Is he your rescuer and redeemer? Is he a good God who is sovereign over all of life? Then take the next step. Work hard. Do the righteous thing. And trust him. Lord, help us to do that. For your honor and for your glory alone because you are worthy, and you are trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to respond to God with me, and let's stand together as we sing this song still and focus on the Lord.